Hi everyone, Alex here, just popping in at the top of the episode to let you know that this episode of the podcast was recorded separately and outside of our usual room. I was having to be quiet and that's why my voice might be a little bit weird, uh, a little bit soft, a little bit sultry. I promise you we're not trying to do ASMR, that was just me trying to keep the noise down in my own home. Also, this episode was heavily inspired by a series of articles on existentialism and nihilism in Dark Souls, and I recommend you read them, I really do. I'm going to post links to all three of them in the description, one by Nelson Thomas Carroll on The Artifice, one by Jordan Smith on Killscreen, and one by Eric Kirsting on Pop Matters. You really should give them a read, I only scratched the surface, and those really delved deep into things. Anyway, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Lorax. This is the podcast where we take most people's favourite sci-fi, fantasy and fictional settings and look at them just a little bit too deeply through philosophical, historical and sociological lenses. It's just Alex today. This episode will be a shorter edition of the podcast, a hand axe if you will, because uh, Khalil is not available for this week. But that doesn't mean we're not going to still dive into things too deeply and have you coming away thinking, wow, these guys really do think too much about these topics. So without further ado, let's begin. You are like a dying person. You die daily, not in the profound, earnest sense in which one usually understands these words but life has lost its reality, and you always count the days of your life from one termination notice to the next. You let everything pass you by, and nothing makes any impact. Those are the words of Soren Kierkegaard, the Nordic philosopher in his book Either Or, Part 2. And It's something that applies to our topic for today, which is talking about one of the most beloved video game series of all time, Dark Souls. We're going to be jumping deep into the existentialism and nihilism of the setting and drawing from a few thinkers from the past, including Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, uh, Camus, Hegel and Sartre. But first, let's have a think about Dark Souls and how... That quote applies to it. So Dark Souls was a game released by the Japanese development house From Software in 2011. Created by Hidetaka Miyazaki, the series has received almost industry-wide critical acclaim. Dark Souls was the first in the series, and in some quarters considered to be one of the best games ever made. It's set in a dark medieval fantasy world, where the player character has to fight monsters, phantoms, demons, and supernatural beings on their quest to eliminate evil that plagues the land of Lodrum. The player is empowered by the lost souls of the dead, collected by slaying enemies and sometimes friends, as well as the power of humanity, which allows them to regain their former status as a being with a soul. A key feature of Dark Souls, 
and its descendants, including Dark Souls 2, uh, Bloodborne, and the newest release, Elden Ring, is how the game handles progress, death, and improvement. Bonfires, which are a recurring theme across the entire catalogue of From Software games, serve as checkpoints. Players respawn at these locations after they die, which forces them to face the same enemies over and over again until the challenge is defeated. Think back to that quote at the start from Kierkegaard. You die daily, not in the profound earnest sense, but life has lost its reality. Players can also find their previous death, the point of their previous death, that is, and restore crucial resources from their old run. This, alongside the ever-present spectre of imminent and sudden elimination, means that players are incentivized not to fear the possibility of death, but instead learn from their mistakes and roll with the many punches that Dark Souls' difficulty curve throws at them. It's a central part of the game. Uh, The players thrust into this uh, arguably absurd and meaningless existence where death isn't an escape, and the famous screen that appears hundreds, maybe even thousands of times through a player's uh, run-through of the game saying, you died, doesn't sink like game over, but more of a resignation of an inevitability. This is the world you inhabit in Dark Souls. It's one which only really has one real conclusion. And this sort of evokes the philosophy of 20th century thinker, Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, he argues that if there's no creator, there is only existence, and a person's actions and legacy is all they leave behind. Think about the fact that when you die in Dark Souls, your legacy is left indelibly on the ground you died on. There's blood left in your wake, along with the souls and humanity you collected along the way. And even think about those things themselves. Uh, blood, uh, the souls and humanity that are inherent in your blood, those are words that have obvious power, a soul, humanity. But in Dark Souls, they're nothing more than currency to increase your power. A player spends the worth of others as freely as they would small change. This kind of brings around the idea uh, of the setting of Dark Souls and the fact that its very central theme is about the foibles and follies of mankind. The player explores an overworld that is corrupted and ruined, at least for the first part of the game, with the only vestiges of a once great civilization, the only clue they had to the world that they once inhabited, or that indeed uh, the souls of the dead once inhabited. This world isn't empty, however. There are lots of NPCs to be interactive with, interacted with. And they too can be seen as markers of the good and the bad in humanity. The game presents these characters and the theme of good and bad without fear or favour. The world of Lodron is, is without an overarching set of laws or order, societal or otherwise, or even religious. This is a vacuum, and the player is allowed the freedom to choose, to make changes to the world around them dictated only by their own morals. This is something that is reflected in the words of Nietzsche, who says that no one can construct for you the bridge upon which precisely you must cross the stream of life. No one but yourself alone. 
Nietzsche also once said, only that which has no history can be defined. And Dark Souls provides that for you. You are on your own, for the most part, and tasked with interpreting the world that you're thrust into by yourself. Now you might be thinking, if this game presents good and evil, there must be some kind of wishy-washy centrist dad middle ground. But not really. In the opening of the game, we're told explicitly that there are two binaries. Fire and cold. Good and evil. And with fire came disparity. Heat and cold. Life and death. And of course, light and dark. These things are interlinked, and the player is immersed in this idea from the very beginning of the game. After this, the players are introduced to the Undead Asylum, the opening area of the game. And narratively, Dark Souls here is showing the player from the very first moment that this is a setting where the worst can and has happened. But it also displays small motes of good within this shroud of evil. The first character you meet is a knight named Oscar. He drops a key into your cell, and later, as he dies, from an unknown cause, presumably the boss you fight later in the section, he implores the player to find a way to save the world they inhabit. Regrettably, I have failed in my mission, but perhaps you can keep the torch lit. Well, now you know, and I can die with hope in my heart. Despite everything, and the horrible circumstances you arrive in, one of the first characters you meet provides you with a framework from which to base your understanding. But this is a tension that's implicit throughout the player's interaction with the rest of the game's NPCs. In fact, the very next NPC you meet is the crestfallen warrior, who believes that all is lost. You'd have done better to rot in the undead asylum. Too late now. (sighs) So here we have two characters looking at the same world, but drawing different conclusions. Another NPC, and a fan favourite, is Soleil Vastora, a man who, with the sun emblazoned on his chest, is looking to do good in the world. He offers to help the player fight bosses and overcome their challenges, and like the player, he is also an undead, a a hollowed creature, but doesn't view it as a curse, but as an opportunity for hope. Something else to think about with the NPCs is that the consequences of your actions are rarely made evident. And the range of your actions are pretty limitless. People think of games like Divinity Original Sin or the newly released Baldur's Gate 3 as an example of player agency, yet Dark Souls was doing it back in 2011. You can kill pretty much any NPC you come across, crucial or not. In Dark Souls, there's no brigade of police or watchmen to teleport behind you, chase you down, and decry your crime, if it indeed is a crime. 
that only the other NPCs, content never to have to discuss your deeds as long as you keep the souls coming and you keep your weapons still in their faces. With the introduction of Solaire comes a introduction to the multiplayer narrative of Dark Souls, and this is where you can really see the interpretation of a world without morality where those who inhabit it populate it with morality. This is a world where you wake up and you are not told by a religious leader, a societal leader, uh, even anyone you come across that this is the way you have to think. People present you with their worldviews, with their circumstances, and make the player choose. And Dark Souls offers all of its players a chance to join covenants, powerful factions in the game that allow them to appear in the games of other players. This can be as a collaborator and a helper, like Solaire, fighting bosses alongside your new ally and helping them progress. Or helping them progress. Alternatively, you can act as a violent antagonist, invading another player's world to kill them, empower the enemies they're facing, or hunt them down to gain rewards in your own world. Even without cooperation or invasion, Dark Souls is littered by the actions of your fellow players. All around the game there are messages scrawled on the cobbles, and they will, depending on the person who wrote it, point you to treasure, lead you into an enemy trap, or just make a funny little pun, probably more of the latter than there are of the former. And like in this way, the player's always reminded of the dichotomy, and the fact that there are people influencing you all the time, but they're colleagues, they're not people telling you from a point of authority this is how you do things. And this ties into the idea, again from Nietzsche, of the Ubermensch, uh, something that has iffy ties towards things like Nazism and supremacy, but is actually about a person able to select their path in a world free from the influence of others. Dark Souls gives the player a route into that, but also offers them comparatives in their contemporaries. Will you be influenced by the fact that when you were just about to complete this section of the game, Another player came in and murdered you. Or perhaps that the boss you've been stuck on for three or four hours you finally managed to get past because of an enterprising player and the routes and strategies they had discovered. The game's final decision, and, and skip this now if you don't want spoilers, uh, spoilers to a game that's more than a decade old anyway, epitomizes everything that Dark Souls is trying to teach the player. Once you've explored the city of the gods, this reminder of the splendor that humanity had once achieved, you are forced to fight Gwyn, the Lord of Fire, the deity who gifted humanity its power and its ability to craft the progenitor civilization that fell so cruelly before the game's beginning. With Gwyn vanquished, the player stands at something called the Kiln of the First Flame. And it's here that you're faced with a decision. Take all the power, the souls, and the humanity you have collected, and place them into the fire to keep the flames alight. Or, walk away 
and join the primordial servants as a new Dark Lord. The player is placed at the crossroads of a few interesting questions here. Indeed, he or she is also influenced by two devil and angel on your shoulder kind of figures who are leaders of covenants and uh, influential figures. One, the Darkstalker, offers a very Nietzschean view of the world and a very Nietzschean view of your choice that in rejecting the flames, you will finally know the truth of men and prove that the truth becomes you and that you can show the world truth. Here, truth and morality are as you make it, a fulfillment of that Ubermensch idea, a belief in your own moral code, devoid of influence from religion, society, or desire, and that to feed these flames, to, to proliferate the situation, you are doing nothing but adhering to a truth that is being thrust upon you. The other choice is championed by the King Seeker. Now he counsels the player to become a bastion of light, sacrificing themselves to allow humanity's continued existence. He says, your fate is to succeed the great Lord Gwyns, that you may link the fire, cast away the dark, and undo the curse. Now with the Kingseeker, you can interestingly see an idea championed by George Wilhelm Hegel and his master-slave dialectic. Now this was first posited in, in Hegel's Phenomenology of the Spirit in 1807, and suggests that there are two universal consciousnesses, the master and the slave. The master survives on freedom at all costs, and they believe that without it, there is no point in life. Give me freedom or give me death. Now the slave decides that freedom is worthless if one's life is lost, having experienced the chains and shackles of not being free. As the successor to Gwyn, the player begins as the slave in the asylum. And now, they can become equal to the master. Yet in doing so, they're going to sacrifice their life. Now, the solution to the master-slave dialectic is that when the master and the slave become one, they understand each other, they lose their own selves. But first, the slave who's desired freedom and life must come to terms with the will of the master. This was a theory posited at, during the height of the slave trade. Now, Hegel's master-slave has been read as a critique of oppressive relations, and his own theory of freedom praises the notion that all human beings are entitled to freedom as an insight that is pivotal to modernity. There are various places in Hegel where he takes a deeply ambivalent position when it comes to slavery. Anyone who's that ambivalent about the slave trade, even when their contemporaries are rightly against it, you should probably take some of their views with a pinch of salt. He also constructs a contemporary debate as antimony, in which both sides grasp a partial truth, which is those who reject slavery are right insofar as slavery is unjust, because humans are natural beings that must go through a process of education to become free. Now think about that, a process of education... You as the slave in Dark Souls have gone through your own period of education from being a nothing in the undead asylum to an all-conquering hero 
or villain, depending on your choice again. This is the thing that breaks you from the master-slave uh, dialectic here. You've matched that that Hegel. You've matched that definition that Hegel provides. You've gone through horrible, horrible things to emerge as an equal to the master. Now, again, I must stress that Hegel's views here are, are outdated, but when you apply them to something like this, you can see the parallels here. Another thing to mention about Hegel's master-slave, not necessarily Hegel's master-slave, but actually Hegel's phenomenology of the spirit, is the idea that people have perspectives that are separate from your own, and that it is only in understanding those perspectives that you understand something about yourself. The player who decides to become a dark wraith asserts their will over others in a primitive fashion through violence. The player who decides to become a warrior of sunlight seeks to help others through altruism. So that fits perfectly with this idea of usurping Gwyn. You're now powerful enough to become equal. And you can choose to assert your will over him by defeating him in combat and becoming the Dark Lord. Or choose to come alongside Lord Gwyn after releasing him from his undead form and sacrificing yourself. Whatever you decide says a lot about you, Dark Soul says to you. If you choose to become the Dark Lord, there's the consequence that you could perhaps rule over a ruined, corrupted and horrible landscape. But what you will have is the power you desire to reshape that world in a manner of your choosing. If you choose to become a King of Light and stand alongside Gwyn, then you become a Christ-like messiah figure. It's the ultimate form of putting yourself above others. But the key thing here is that the choice falls entirely on the player, and that decision is influenced by the player's journey through the world of Dark Souls and the things they encounter along the way. How has the player been affected by going into the Dark Burg? How has the player been affected by seeing the glittering citadels of the realm of the gods? How has the player been affected by knowing that they started off dying in a cell, their humanity rotting away? If you agree, as some do, that the player is not some sort of divine champion chosen by the gods, but just another undead trying to make their way in the world, it provides that fresh palette, that person without interpersonality, that person without influence. And so by the end of the game, we have a avatar uh, soaked in the personality of the player. Kierkegaard once wrote in his work Fear and Trembling that, and I quote, I can resign everything by my own strength and find peace and rest in the pain. I can put up with everything, even if that dreadful demon, more horrifying than the skeletal one who terrifies me, even if madness held its fool's costume before my eyes, and I understood from its face that it was I who should put it on. This was a metaphorical outline of the idea of infinite resignation. A situation in which a brutal existence is met with stark, solemn solitude, eventually pushing the individual into a high plane of self-awareness. Now let's think about how that applies to Dark Souls, hey? A brutal existence, met with solemn solitude, 
thrusting the player into a higher plane of self-awareness. Another factor to think about here is that Dark Souls again provides a scenario in which the player must finish the game only because it is a game. You are set out on a path towards an end that is not necessary. This is a world where it seems entirely constructed to obstruct you from your end goal, right? Enemies come at you in, in their dozens, they kill you through two or three swings, there are traps knocking you off of platforms, there are other players turning up to hack you to pieces, and there are bosses that, whether they are huge three-story colossi demons or tiny things that chip away almost all of your health with one hit, seem to just be there to frustrate, to kill you over and over and over again. That infinite resignation we were talking about. Death is not even a release here. But, interestingly, this could be a, a matter of perspective. In fact, uh, Jordan Smith, in the article, one of the articles I mentioned at the start, uh, says that... When you begin to view yourself in this game as the intruder and the aggressor, the behavior of the monsters you encounter starts to make more sense. They're not seeking you out, nor do these bosses chase you once you leave their little zone of control. Instead, they're actually reacting to your appearance in the same way you would expect they would to the appearance of any other armor-clad, weapon-brandishing stranger in a world filled with violence. They assume says Smith, correctly that you mean to kill them. And so, in response, they will try and kill you. Dark Souls is a game where the burden of the adventure is not shared by the player with either other players or NPCs. It's a game of solitude, of perspective, of analysis of your own existence, an existence that can sometimes be brutally futile and small. There are superficial interactions between individuals with no moralistic power structure in place to contend with you. You have every decision to make. You are not controlled, you control your destiny. There is no ultimate universal truth. If there was, the game would probably be not as satisfying as it is. It might not be a significant marker of existentialist thought, or indeed even nihilism, but there are plenty of conclusions that can be drawn from the way the game works to hold up a mirror to the person behind the controller. And I think it's worth saying that, I haven't seen any statistics on this, but looking at games like Mass Effect uh, and Baldur's Gate 3, the amount of players who choose the good options usually outweighs the ones who choose the bad. And in a world like Dark Souls, devoid of a guiding hand, the fact that most players are helpful probably says something about humanity. Even if it says that those behind those controllers might be good in that game because they are acting based on the moral code provided for them in the modern world. And that's a spiral of a thought I'm going to leave you on. So, see you next time for another episode of The Lorax. Don't know what we'd be talking about, 
but hopefully something a little cheerier. See ya.